This week's episode is brought to you by Tuck. Having trouble sleeping? Check out the first fully customizable hybrid mattress available online with Tuck mattresses. You can visit trytuck.com history and complete their quick sleep test. Tuck's algorithm uses your preferences to design a mattress just for you. Your customized mattress will include a high-quality pocketed coil system plus latex and copper-infused gel foams for the perfect mix of support and comfort. The coolest thing about Tuck is that if you've got a sleep partner, you can customize your side of the bed in sizes queen and up. The last time my wife and I shopped for mattresses, we tried four different brands, including a few I'm sure you've heard about on other podcasts, but couldn't find a bed we agreed on. Tuck sent us a mattress we customized using their dual comfort option. I've been sleeping on it for a good six months, and I wake up every morning refreshed and ready to go. Visit Tuck at trytuck.com history to learn more. I love mine, and I'm sure you'll love yours too. Again, that's trytuck, T-U-C-K dot com slash history. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 227, The Measure of an Emperor, part 2. In 1921, at the age of 20, Crown Prince Hirohito finished school, and promptly did what so many students do when they finish their education. He took a trip. Of course, like everything else in Hirohito's life, this was not so much his decision as it was a carefully crafted decision by a series of stakeholders in the fate of his dynasty, only one of which was, you know, the guy actually going on the trip. Specifically, the plan was for the Crown Prince to go to Europe for a six-month tour, where he would visit the United Kingdom, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Italy, with stops along the way in Hong Kong, Singapore, India, the Suez, and Gibraltar, all possessions of Japan's closest ally, the United Kingdom. The goal of the trip was twofold. First, there were those in the imperial court who wanted to help cast a new model for Japan's emperor. Emperors were by tradition reclusive figures, hidden from the public eye. Unlike the rulers of Europe, they didn't really do public engagements in the traditional sense. That would be insufficiently reverential to the throne. Hirohito's trip was supposed to be the first step on the road to casting the monarchy in a new light, with Hirohito actually serving as the public face of the monarchy rather than an abstract presence in the way that his grandfather and father usually were. The trip was also a PR exercise for Japan itself. After all, the First World War had vaulted Japan to the rank of great world power basically overnight. Japan was now a founding member of the League of Nations, a close ally of the greatest power left on the planet, and an imperial force in its own right. Hirohito was, in essence, doing a tour in Europe to display the arrival of Japan at the table of the great nations of the world. The trip was also a reward to Japan's allies in World War II, as well as a demonstration of Japan's commitment to global peace. Hirohito would, as a part of the trip, tour various battle sites from World War I, 
where he would view the remains of the conflict firsthand. At each stop, he would give a brief speech stating the commitment of Japan to the new global peaceful order. Most notably, he made a stop at Malta, where the graves of 77 Japanese soldiers who had been killed during a U-boat attack in the Mediterranean were located, and there he gave an impassioned speech on his dedication to the cause of global peace. However, from what we can tell, it was not so much wartime devastation that affected Hirohito, but rather his trip to one of the parts of Europe where the physical landscape, if not the mental one, was least affected, the United Kingdom. At the time Hirohito arrived, the King of the United Kingdom and British Dominions and the Emperor of India was none other than George V, one of Great Britain's most popular modern monarchs, and a man who did a lot to help modernize the institution of the British monarchy. By 1921, King George had been on the throne for 11 years, and he'd been the force that guided Britain through the First World War. He'd been an active and engaged leader, visiting with troops, holding rallies for the war, and generally just trying to organize and energize the British people to support the most grueling conflict, to that point, in their history. George V was also, by all accounts, an affable and charismatic man in person, and went out of his way to make Hirohito feel welcome. He greeted the young crown prince personally at Victoria Station in London, and brought him into the royal carriage for a ride to Buckingham Palace along a route lined with cheering spectators. The next day, the king had Hirohito in his chambers for an informal breakfast, during which, to Hirohito's amazement, the king wore slippers and pants with suspenders instead of shoes and formal clothes, and his son, Crown Prince Edward, the future Edward VIII, who would abdicate his throne after a year to marry a Nazi-sympathizing American divorcee, took Hirohito for a round of golf, and was generally tasked with being companion to Japan's Crown Prince during his stay in London. This combination of extreme pomp and circumstance with a very warm and friendly treatment made a profound impact on young Hirohito. Rather depressingly, he later referred to his time in London as the happiest time of his life, the one time he felt truly free to be himself, rather than what his role required him to be. Indeed, a biography in Time magazine of Hirohito, published in 1940, made mention of the fact that he had ordered a nine-hole golf course installed on the grounds of one of his palaces, a relic, perhaps, of his time in merry old England. Yet it wasn't just golfing and the informality of George V that impressed young Hirohito, for George had a rather interesting style as a monarch. The British sovereign was, in the same vein as Japan's emperor, a constitutional monarch whose role was restricted by law and convention. However, George used a combination of his aforementioned charisma along with the ceremonial role still afforded to the king to actually be pretty engaged in the goings-on of British politics. For example, George had always been deeply suspicious of the motives of his cousin, Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II, and before World War I, had initiated whisper campaigns against pacifist government ministers who supported accommodation with Germany. However, he was still enough of a family man at heart that when, after World War I, the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George proposed trying the Kaiser as a war criminal, George intervened to nix the idea. He also put the kibosh on Lloyd George's suggestion that Britain house a government in exile of the Romanov dynasty, 
by propping up Romanov relatives who had fled to the United Kingdom after the Russian Revolution as the true heirs of the Russian throne. George V was, in the end, not a particularly big fan of his Russian relatives and feared at any rate that bringing them to the UK, where Russian monarchs were viewed as absolutist tyrants, would fan the flames of revolution in his own country. So George was active and engaged as a monarch despite nominally being a figurehead, and some, most notably the historian Herbert Bix, suggest that this activism was a model for Hirohito later in his life. Two other lessons from Hirohito's time abroad are worth noting. First, George V had led the British monarchy through a transitional time into the modern age of newspaper, film, and radio. He was far more engaged in public spectacle than his predecessors had ever been, and this would provide a model for Hirohito himself later in life. Second, Hirohito appears to have engaged in a moment of genuine candor during his time in England. According to the memoirs of one of his military aides, as that aide recorded it in his diary, quote, The very rational-minded prince does not believe that the ancestors of the imperial house are truly gods or that the present emperor is a living god. I once heard that he divulged the thought that we ought to maintain the status quo, keeping the koktai as it is, but he seems to think that it is too much to completely separate the emperor as a god from the nation. He thinks it would be best to maintain the imperial house along British lines, in which the monarch reigns but does not rule. This is, of course, a good bit of hearsay, but because of how difficult it can be to research Hirohito, this is really what we have to go on. And this admission, if it's true, is astonishing. First, Hirohito admitted, unsurprisingly, his doubts about his divine lineage, as well as the divinity of his father. But he refused to outright reject that basic formula that the emperor was the state was Japan that was so crucial to imperial propaganda. Though in his heart he knew the truth, Hirohito was unprepared to defy tradition on his own. The reference to the British monarchy is also telling, both because it points to the prince's growing Anglophilia, and because it points to one of the structural flaws of the Meiji system. The constitution, after all, was predicated on the emperor exercising authority, or at least someone exercising it in the emperor's name. But a weak emperor could lead to disaster, because informal leadership is, of course, always tenuous. It relies on charisma and circumstance rather than organized power. What disasters might happen if the men behind the scenes, who'd always called the shots, were to become weak or inept, and the emperor himself was not prepared to step in and check their influence? So here, before he even ascended to the throne, we can begin to see Hirohito as he appeared during the 1930s and 1940s, a man who, it seems, knew that something was not quite right, but who had internalized such a specific vision of his role and his nation and how those two fit together that he couldn't quite bring himself to articulate what seems pretty obvious to an outside observer. The system he was supposed to perpetuate had the potential to fall into disaster, and his vision of what his job was wouldn't allow him to save it. Unfortunately, Hirohito had little time to ponder these thoughts about politics after his trip, because upon his return to Japan, he was pressed immediately into service to aid his faltering father. 
Emperor Taisho had never been particularly healthy, even in his youth, but after taking the throne, his health began to decline noticeably as he became sicker and sicker. His mental health was also called into question. During the opening ceremony for the 1913 Diet, he famously ended his speech by rolling the paper with the speech on it into a tube and gazing through it like a spyglass until his minders ushered him away. By 1918, the Emperor stopped attending yearly maneuvers or training exercises for the Army and Navy, as well as Officer Academy graduations. By 1919, he withdrew from public life altogether. In the short term, the Emperor's functions could be filled by his senior-most deputies in the Imperial Court, the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal and the Lord President of the Privy Council, in conjunction with the energetic Prime Minister, Haratakashi. However, this was not a viable long-term solution because in 1921, Hara was assassinated. The instability created by his assassin caused the other members of the imperial court to fear a political crisis if a strong imperial figure could not be brought forth to unify the country. If the emperor could not do that job, the court needed to revive one of its ancient titles, one dating back over 1,000 years to the time before the samurai, the role of Seshul or Imperial Regent. Hirohito was the obvious choice. Though he was young, at only 21, it made sense to have him start preparing for a role that he'd be filling one day anyway, and at the rate the Taisho Emperor was deteriorating, sooner rather than later. So, on November 29, 1921, upon his return to Japan, Hirohito was named Imperial Regent to his father. The Taisho Emperor would linger on for five more years before dying of a heart attack caused by complications from pneumonia in 1926. However, for all intents and purposes, Hirohito served in fact, if not in name, as Japan's Emperor from 1921. Hirohito found himself enmeshed in a difficult time almost from the get-go. The Japan he inherited was one that, while it appeared to be soaring ever higher in terms of power, also had some deep fault lines running through it. First and foremost among these were differing views on the new order imposed by the end of World War I. More liberal members of government, particularly civilians from the world of the political parties, backed the American proposed, though not, thanks to Republican isolationists in Congress, openly American-supported, post-war world order of the League of Nations, with its attendant ideas of disarmament treaties and free trade. Others, particularly on the military side of things, saw the whole idea as hopelessly naive, and binding Japan in the fetters of a system that was sure to fail. Hirohito's advisors were deeply divided on the issue, with the military men surrounding him being particularly opposed to disarmament treaties with the West. By all accounts, Hirohito seems to have embraced a deeply British response to the whole debacle, overtly refusing to take a stance, well saying it was not his role as a monarch to set that kind of foreign policy. However, he also seemed to take sides by expressing a preference for military men to wear civilian clothing in his presence rather than their uniforms. While conspicuously not dealing with this issue, Hirohito also had to deal with a series of other governmental crises. In 1923, Tokyo was struck by the massive Kanto earthquake, which devastated the city and killed somewhere around 140,000 people. 
Hirohito was in the Imperial Palace in Tokyo at the time. His father was away at the hot springs in Nikko for medical treatment, and that left Hirohito as the public face of the recovery effort. The Crown Prince's handlers also arranged for him to take a trip to Taiwan that year in yet another PR tour designed to convince the Taiwanese that they were now a part of the empire, even as the military regime that governed Taiwan flat-out refused to consider turning the island into a civilian-run province. However, perhaps the most interesting crisis facing the young emperor was a decision that he himself was, somewhat surprisingly, only indirectly involved in. Hirohito was, after all, a young man now, but he wouldn't always be, and one day there would need to be a new emperor, so best get started on that one quick. When he was only 13, Hirohito had been betrothed to Kuni Nagako, daughter of Kuni Kuniyoshi. The story goes that women from appropriate family backgrounds were invited to the imperial palace for a tea ceremony, with Hirohito in the room but hidden behind a screen so he could observe them and Kuni Nagako was his choice. The Kuni family is part of a very complex group of families known as the Oke. These are distant relatives of the imperial family through one of its many branches. The Kuni in particular are descended from an older branch of the imperial family called the Fushimi, which split off back in the 1300s. So technically, the emperor was slated to marry a distant relative, though precisely how distant, I frankly have one hell of a time figuring out. Certainly not that close, but close enough to be a bit uncomfortable. The betrothal decision was made both because A. it was a long-standing tradition to choose imperial wives from the rather small pool of the elite-most Kyoto families, of which the Kuni certainly counted as members, and B. Kuni Kuniyoshi had been an advisor and confidant of the Meiji Emperor, and served honorably in the army to boot. Still, the betrothal was not without controversy. In 1920, the founder of the Imperial Japanese Army and the last remaining original Meiji leader, Yamagata Aritomo, attempted to spike the marriage on the grounds that it was too genetically close, and that the Kuni family had a history of hereditary colorblindness that made them unacceptable additions to the Imperial gene pool. It's sometimes suggested that Yamagata's real objection had more to do with Kuni's mother. Kuni Kuniyoshi had fathered the girl with a daughter of the Shimazu family, the old lords of Satsuma domain. Though Satsuma and Yamagata Aritomo's native Choshu had allied to take down the Tokugawa shoguns, and though neither one technically existed by 1920, the old domains maintained an ongoing rivalry for influence and authority within the government. Yamagata did not like the idea of a Satsuma woman being so close to the emperor. However, Yamagata's stated reason of worry about inbreeding was a matter of concern as well. Crown Prince Yoshihito's sickly nature and the fact that he was the only one of Emperor Meiji's sons to survive to adulthood, and the fact that Meiji lost 11 out of his 15 children to early childhood diseases, all of that caused rumors that the imperial family was suffering from some kind of genetic issue brought on by excessive inbreeding. Yamagata was not alone in thinking that the imperial line needed some fresh blood. Yet the marriage went ahead in the end. More than anything, the idea of breaking a betrothal off was considered to be too much of a stain on the imperial house to really consider, 
and at any rate, Hirohito and Nagako had both known of the betrothal since it had been arranged, so breaking it off would be difficult for both of them, or so it had been judged, the grandees deciding the issue certainly did not consult Nagako, and to the best of my knowledge, didn't consult Hirohito either. Nagako in particular had been groomed since the age of 14 under an equally exacting regimen as the one enforced on Hirohito on the grounds that she would be empress one day, though of course the focus was a bit different, replacing military training, for example, with tea ceremony. Training up a new empress would mean delaying the emperor's marriage like as not, and it could be delayed to an unacceptable degree. And so in 1924, the marriage finally took place. By all accounts, it was a fairly happy one. Hirohito apparently liked Nagako enough that even though their first four children were all daughters, princesses Shigeko, Sachiko, Kazuko, and Atsuko, all ineligible to inherit the throne, he refused any suggestion of taking a new wife in the search for a male heir. And this is getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but that decision would ultimately be rewarded in 1933, when Nagako finally did give birth to a male heir to the throne, Prince Akihito. A second son, Masahito, was born in 1935, and a final daughter, Takako, in 1939. But that's well ahead of where we are now. We're still locked in the 1920s, a time when the imperial court was in a pretty different place from where it would be a decade later. In particular, when Hirohito was getting married and having his first children, his closest advisors, including Sayonji Kinmochi, who'd represented Japan at the Versailles Treaty Talks after World War I, the diplomat and former Prime Minister Shidehara Kijiro, and the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal, Makino Nobuaki, still counseled alliances and close cooperation with the West. Sure, in the 1920s, American and British policy towards Japan was getting harder and harder to stomach. American demands that the Anglo-Japanese alliance be ended in 1922 rankled the Japanese, as it ended a formal diplomatic relationship that had been a big prestige booster for the world's newest world power. And sure, all those disarmament treaties and talks went against the grain of what the military wanted. And yeah, discriminatory acts like America's 1924 immigration law wrangled all of Japan, including Hirohito. But his advisors still counseled patience with the West. Not because, they said, global peace pushed by organizations like the League of Nations was an end in and of itself, but because it was a useful means. As long as Japan played nice with the other children, it could build an ever stronger economy through trade with the West and their sprawling imperial possessions. Hirohito seems to have been convinced by that reasoning, and used what influence he had to back pro-Western factions in government. But how much influence that was for an emperor who traditionally reigned but did not rule is still debatable. It's a very hard question to answer in particular because it gets at the heart of Hirohito's reign and the approach he took to governance. It also gets at the essence of the historical controversies surrounding Hirohito, because the extent to which you support the idea that he was an activist monarch tends to correlate to the extent to which you believe he was a war criminal. Hirohito's approach to influencing policy was a pretty informal one. After years of education coupled with ongoing lectures from his senior advisors on current events, Hirohito had a good understanding of his government's entanglements, 
he would then reach out to government ministers and invite them over to brief him privately on their initiatives, and he would then proceed to question them about their activities without ever expressly giving his opinion most of the time on their thoughts and plans. That said, it was usually possible to divine Hirohito's intent or views on a given issue by the nature of the questions he posed. Hirohito had zero problem pressing his ministers on positions he felt to be foolish or ill-considered. In the fashion of George V, he would use this indirect form of pressure to suggest that they reconsider their opinions. However, he did resist direct involvement in politics, confining himself to pressing his ministers indirectly to consider alternative paths in their decision-making. The last thing I want to discuss is Hirohito's final ascension to the throne, which took place on December 25th, 1926, when the chronically ill Taisho Emperor finally succumbed. This event is not noteworthy so much in and of itself. The modern investment rituals of a new emperor are very complicated, involving presenting the emperor with the three imperial regalia, several purification ceremonies, and a good number of speeches, of course. What makes it interesting, instead, is how the ascension of a new youthful emperor was treated in Japanese popular culture, particularly the mass media. The Taisho Emperor was perceived, not unjustifiably, as weak and disengaged from the actual processes of the empire, which is what enabled, for good or ill depending on your perspective, the rise of Japan's political parties to national power in the 1920s. But Hirohito was young, and he was energetic, and during his time as a regent he'd already proven his chops. Thus, a popular narrative pushed by the mass media in conjunction with the government emphasized the idea that a young emperor would reinvigorate the empire. Japan was on the rise in 1926. It was a youthful great power, arguably the most youthful great power, a respected member of the League of Nations, and a force to be reckoned with. And its young emperor would lead the empire to newer and greater heights. Thus, an editorial from the Yokohama Boeki Shimbun in December 1928, entitled Young Japan and Its Global Mission, was very much in keeping with the trend of the times when it said, quote, Today's Japan should indeed not confine itself to its own small sphere. Neither should it remain in its position in the Orient or continue to occupy the place it holds in the world. This is an age in which Japan bears a global mission. It has become the center, the principal, the commander, and it is advancing with the times to lead the entire world." Unquote. Not exactly subtle stuff, and in light of what's coming in the 1930s and 1940s, it all seems to presage the coming age of militarism and imperial fascism. And certainly the kernel of that is present in this editorial. But the tone of Hirohito's reign was not set. The new age he would lead Japan into could be a very different one of peace and prosperity within the existing empire, with growing economic, political, and social influence rather than military expansion. Certainly the idea of peaceful spread of Japan's influence was reflected in the name chosen to represent Hirohito's new era on the throne, Showa which is usually translated as enlightened peace or radiant harmony or something nice like that. Of course, students of Japanese will note that that's only one possible translation. Wa as a character is also commonly associated with things Japanese, 
dating all the way back to the first Chinese records written about Japan, which referred to Japan as the Land of Wa. And thus the name could also be rendered as Shining Japan or Radiant Japan, as an expression of nationalism rather than a commitment to peace and harmony. So how would that tension between two distinct visions of Japan's future shake out in the new life of its emperor? Well, we'll see next week. For now, though, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle Hirohito before the war.